loving Father, for each one of us, that phrase is almost all we need to know. I am yours, and you are mine. Changes everything about our lives. And it's not just a, a one-way vertical relationship. It changes all of our horizontal relationships as well. Because you are his and he is yours. So we belong to each other. We're part of the same family. We're created by the same father. We're redeemed by the same savior. We're indwelt by the same spirit. So we pray now, come, Abba, Father. It's two Sundays after Pentecost, but we pray, come, Abba, Father. We pray, come, anointed King, Lord Jesus, come. We pray, come, Holy, Holy Spirit. Fill us in a new and a fresh way. Transform our stubborn, our hard, and our cold hearts to hearts of flesh. Give us minds that desire to do your will. Fill us today in a new and a fresh way, we pray, in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Welcome to Bethany. Hey, listen, what a wonderful time of worship. I want to thank our worship team, Kelsey, Kiara, Alex, Ryan, and Casey. And I want to thank uh, the rest of the people who are making this happen today and have for uh, close to three months now. Next Sunday, I think it's going to be three months, uh, Emily and Sergio and Chad and Billy and uh, Pastor Brandon as well. Pastor Brandon came down from making that announcement, that warm greeting, and I just said, you know, let me just take a seat. <laughs> Wasn't that wonderful? I think it's time to have him take a message and let us hear from his heart what God is doing uh, in and through him right now. I'm glad that you are here. I want to talk to you today about the tale of two cities, the tale of two cities. One we've talked about uh, for uh, several weeks coming up uh, to the day of Pentecost a couple weeks back. Uh, another one may be a little bit more surprising. And in doing so, we're going to find out uh, the answer to this question. What does God's kingdom look like? When God's kingdom is at work here as well as there, on earth as it is in heaven, what does it look like? Acts 2 will give us uh, a little bit of a picture of what that exactly looks like. So we continue our study in the book of Acts of Acts chapter 1, after the suffering of Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and that 40 days, by the way, mirrors the 40 days that Jesus spent at the beginning of his earthly ministry, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit as his baptism went for 40 days and came out full of the Holy Spirit and began his ministry with that extraordinary scripture reading of Isaiah 61, which then, he said, became a living reality as he was speaking it. It's also a, a reminder of the 40 days that Israel wandered in the wilderness, 
because of their refusal to trust a loving God. His topic, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion while he was eating with them, because Jesus loves to do everyday life with us, not just churchy kinds of things, temple kinds of things, religious kinds of things, he does everyday life with us as well. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift that my father promised that you have heard me talk about. For John baptized with water. John plunged you into water in a few days. You will be plunged into the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, the breath of God, the fire of God. So when they met together, having been taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days, they, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? For them, the kingdom was, was a personal thing. They, they were so far from the glory days of the kingdom, the days of uh, David the conqueror, the days of uh, Solomon the consolidator who grew the kingdom. And they thought... It's time for us to kind of rise as a nation, as a people, once more. And they thought that Jesus, the anointed one, had come to do just that. They had been shocked and surprised. Okay, he was crucified at the hands of the Roman military powers. But, but now, undoubtedly, now, now there's going to be a political uprising. And Israel is going to go from the bottom of the totem pole to the top. Uh, he said to them, not so much. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, echoing Luke chapter 4 when he came back from his baptism to 40 days in the wilderness and then came from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit and opened Isaiah 61, that scroll to read, it was his turn to read in the temple. There was a lot of literacy in that era that sort of shocks and surprises us uh, in our time, not knowing of the literacy that was available, that was common in that era, common in Jesus' time at uh, a place in uh, Palestine that was really the crossroads of the then known world. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, reminds us of the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, Jesus said. That's why he's the anointed one. The spirit rests on him, has, has christened him or anointed him or been poured out on him. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to talk about me. You're going to talk about me starting in Jerusalem. And that each one of these four areas that they're going to be witnesses to Jesus carry some emotion with it. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to tell people about what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've, what you've witnessed about me in Jerusalem. For many in that group, they had to kind of probably have a, a very distinguishable because just weeks earlier, Jesus had been put to death by an angry crowd in Jerusalem. And after this time, they've been kind of in hiding, sequestered away in their own. So 
Sometimes ministering where God has placed us can be a frightening thing. Uh, then in all Judea, well, maybe that's a little bit better. That kind of uh, poses uh, an awareness of the kind of the rest of the kingdom, especially the northern portion of the, the kingdom of Israel in all Judea. And then the third one maybe have caused them pause as well, and also in Samaria. Well, if they've been with Jesus, they already know he so easily crosses cultural barriers and boundaries and brings the life of God to all who are thirsty, all who are hungry. And then the fourth one really what I've gotten their attention, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, everywhere, we're called to take the good news of Jesus everywhere and to everybody. And after he said this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes. The apostles returned from Jerusalem, and they got busy. They waited in Jerusalem, and to do that, they thought it would be appropriate to all join together constantly in prayer. They all did. The 11 remaining disciples who had, at the end of chapter 1 of Acts, uh, been increased, uh, added one to go back to 12, along with the women. Women are not excluded from the ministry of the Holy Spirit and from being witnesses to the life of Jesus. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And when the day of Pentecost came, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place. Well, of course they were. They were praying. praying. They were waiting. They were worshiping. And suddenly the Holy Spirit showed up. Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. One of the names for the Spirit in the Greek is, is pneuma, ruach in the uh, Hebrew, and it signifies wind. Sometimes you could almost think of not just a quiet breath, but a violent wind, a tornado, if you will. What's significant isn't the nature of the wind, it's the source of the wind. It came from heaven, much like the Holy Spirit at the time of Jesus' baptism. A voice came from heaven, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came and descended upon Jesus. And it filled the whole house. It was global, it was universal in that area. On those people, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And I pray again that God would fill this house of worship. But by extension now, our new houses of worship that are spread throughout Southern California and all kinds of other areas and states and countries right now because of uh, the COVID-19 restriction has caused the gospel to expand, oddly enough. And we get to minister to people all kinds of places. And so I pray that wherever you are, even if you're watching in your cell phone in a, in a coffee house or a bar uh, and you're uh, taking part in our service, I pray that God would fill the place where you were se seated with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and filled the place, the location where in Jerusalem Jesus had been crucified days, weeks before. The Holy Spirit is not restricted by time or place. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Another sign of the Holy Spirit is fire, signifying cleansing, signifying passion and purity, signifying the presence of the living God. And these separated, they came to rest on each of them. May God's Spirit right now rest on everyone who's part of the Bethany family, including you if you've just tuned in, uh, just stumbled across our Facebook or uh, uh, 
YouTube page, you're part of the Bethany family. May the spirit of the living God, the very life and the breath of God himself, may the spirit come to rest on you right now and calm your heart and clear your mind and cleanse you and prepare you for the life and the work that God has destined for you and for me. And over the last two weeks, we've seen that, uh, we, we see here that Jesus will send the gift that the Father promised us. It's uh, shown to us so many times, and the promises are uh, given to us from back in Numbers 11 and Isaiah 61 that we've referenced, and Ezekiel 36 and 37, and Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Because our Father loves to give good gifts to his children. All we have to do is ask. And we have to wait. Number two, we have to wait for it in Jerusalem. And there's a reason for this. We'll see it when we get to verse 5 in a little bit. We have to wait for it in Jerusalem because ministry starts where God has planted us. You may not like where you are right now. You may not like where you physically are right now. Some of you are anxious to get back. We've got to see this new spike in the coronavirus cases and the hospitalizations and deaths. We've got to see that spike go back down before we can kind of be together in one place in the way we'd prefer, but right now God has us where we are. Think about this, maybe for a reason. There are people that you can bless and touch and encourage and serve and pray for. There are people around you in the houses to your left, to your right, across the street, around the corner. There are people around you right now that you might not be able to touch if you're sitting with all the rest of us in this room. We're separated physically, but not spiritually. We're one body. But God puts us in a certain place to make a difference there. And why they needed to be in Jerusalem again, we'll see in verse 5. Ministry starts where God has planted us. Number three, we'll be filled with God's Spirit. God's Holy, Holy Spirit. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. Because to be His witnesses, we will need His power. It's not an easy thing. You remember, just to take one example, Peter. Peter had walked with Jesus for three years, but he wasn't yet filled with the Spirit. And so when Jesus was going to the cross, he asked Peter and others to pray with him in the garden before he was arrested. And three times he came back and said, couldn't, couldn't you pray me for just an hour? Jesus' time of greatest need, he invites them into that whole process, and, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't hold out. And Peter tags along, to his credit, he tags along none of the other disciples except for John and the women uh, show up at the cross. Peter does on the outskirts of the courtyard. But when he's questioned whether he knows or is connected to this Jesus who is now under trial in a shocking manner, he even curses and denies that he even knows the man. And Peter is going to have a starring role, a, a key witness to verbalize what he has seen and heard and experienced of this Jesus at the close of chapter two of Acts. He'll be filled with God's spirit and it changes the effectiveness of what he has to say. Number four, this gift we saw isn't just for you, it's for everybody. And two weeks ago I tried to kind of get to this and I said we'll hold off for next week and uh, the week after I had to do some retractions of some things that I had said appropriately. I had to repent of some things that weren't accurate and uh, gave the wrong impression. And today I want to take some time and focus on 
this fourth point. This gift isn't just for us, it's for everybody. Look at what we've already read. Uh, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name and in Jesus' name, in the Messiah, the anointed one's name, to all nations. That's Luke 24, 47. After his resurrection, a day after his resurrection. Acts 1, 6, they were told, you know, uh, you're, you're going to communicate uh, about the kingdom. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, to us, to our group, to our team, if you will? They misunderstood that the coming of the goodness of God wasn't just for them. Acts 1.8, he said, you're going to be my witnesses, yes, starting in Jerusalem, yes, expanding to all Judea, yes, crossing cultural boundaries and borders, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The good news isn't just for us here. In Acts 2.4 and 11, they begin to speak as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in, with other languages. And the principle we saw is this, that we are blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing. But I said this is a, a story of uh, a tale of two cities. And the one city quite clearly is Jerusalem, and we'll come back to Jerusalem in just a moment. But there's a story in the Old Testament that uh, students of the Bible uh, believe that this story in Acts 2, this narrative of what took place is intended to mirror and intended to transform. It goes all the way back into the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, and it's called the Tower of Babel. And it begins like this, Genesis 11. It's in your notes. If you have the notes, they're available uh, online for you. And uh, if you don't know where, uh, make a comment right now, and Emily will make sure you're pointed in the right direction. So it's not on your screen. But now the whole world following the creation of the world and beginning of the growth of population. Now the whole world had one language. One language. Had a common speech. They shared that in common. Uh, But as people began to move eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. uh, People believe this is in the land of Babylonia, in modern-day Iraq. And they settled there. Maybe circle that word, settled. Sometimes we tell people in a certain situation, hey, don't settle kind of an emotional, kind of not going for the best you can be, not going for who God has destined you to be, a settling. But I think it has a little deeper meaning in this particular context. They said, this is far enough, and we've got kind of everything that we need, everybody that we need right here. Let's just put up some walls and hang out. And they said to each other, Uh, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, probably because they didn't have stone available. They used tar for mortar, same reason as well. And then they said, come, let let us build ourselves a city with a tower that rises to the heavens. Because life is about us. Here's how they put it. So that we may make a name for ourselves. That's what's important, right? Let us promote our brand the Babylonian brand, the Shinar brand. Otherwise, we'll be scattered. This would be horrible. We'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You know, you know, we have emotions about being scattered. You, you want to settle somewhere? You want to be scattered? Right now, our family is scattered. We've got Shelby and Ryan and, and uh, uh, the star of the show, Baby Luca, 
in Okinawa, and we would love to have them home and hope to soon uh, have them home, but right now they're scattered, and, and we don't always like to be scattered. We, we don't like to be far from things that are familiar. The faces that we know, the language that we know, the comfort foods that warm our hearts. Uh, we we, we want to make this tower to make something to promote ourselves Otherwise, we'll be scattered and, and we'll be separate and we'll be interspersed with, with other kinds of people, some of whom might not be like us. Some of whom might not be like us. We like to say at Bethany we're a multi-generational church. We like to say at Bethany we're a multicultural church. We're a multi-ethnic church. We'd like to be even more so. I add sometimes at Bethany we're a multi-personality church, a little laugh here, sign inserted, right? But we are. We're all completely different in personality. Some of us uh, primarily make decisions uh, cerebrally. Some, some of us primarily do that with the heart, with our emotions, with our feelings. Some of us are extroverts and get pumped up by being around other people. Some of us are introverts and dread going to a party. And if we do go to a party, we'll be off in a corner talking to one individual. Some of us go about things... Uh, in a variety of different manners. We're all unique, and sometimes we're more comfortable being with people who are wired like us. When I became an adult, I got some insight into why I was so weird as a kid. It's because my personality is different. I took a Myers-Briggs personality and an analysis, the Kiersey Bates book that came out a number of years ago, and discovered that my particular combination of the four letters, the four poles that are possible was pretty extreme, but it was also pretty rare. So people who are INTPs, it's not critically important what that is unless you have to deal with me on a daily basis, which can be very frustrating. What I found is that people who are INTPs like me, are there's only one in a hundred. So as I was growing up and going to grade school, junior high, high school, only one in a hundred was probably like me, and you've got classes of maybe 30 or so, so maybe only the third or fourth or fifth class would even have one person like me, and the chance of my kind of connecting with them, and then my teachers probably rarely had somebody wired quite like me. So it explains why I grew up thinking, uh, I understood the process, I'm a freak. I grew up and learned the statistics, and I thought, hey, I feel better now, I feel a little more relaxed because I worried that I was a freak when I was younger and now that I know the facts and the statistics, now I know that I'm a freak and I feel much more comfortable. Anyway, enough about me, but it's true that we're all different, right? We're all wired utterly in a unique combination. We each have a different, if you will, special sauce, okay? We don't want to be scattered, but the Lord came down to see the city. The Lord came down to see the city. You know what happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you remember what happened with the Lord up in heaven? The Lord came down, and everything changed. Well, the Lord came down here to see the city and to see this tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible to them. So come, let us go down. Let us go down. God works in community. God lives in community. God relates in community. The, the threefold God, the three-person God. Come, let us go down and confuse their language 
so they will not understand each other, which uh, sometimes reading this through initially or even repeatedly makes it look like the story is about God just pulling a a bad practical joke or something or just kind of being particularly mean-spirited for no real reason. What's what's critical for us to notice is the fact that three times this next phrase is said, they wanted to settle there. God says, we're going to scatter them, verse 4, and then verse 8, so the Lord, again, scattered them the second time from there over all the earth. And they stopped building that city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And the idea is that this uh, word Babel is uh, a word that's uh, uh, in the original language is referred to as confusion, chaos. What happens often in our relationships, have you ever said one thing and had somebody heard it as something else or thought you were saying one thing, but turns out what you were saying ended up coming out utterly different from what you had in your mind? That's a, a result of what happened at battle. Our languages have been confused, and so it takes effort for us to learn the language of, the, of, of other people. It takes, it takes effort to learn the heart of another person, the mind of another person, the ways of another person, the fears and hopes and dreams and worries of another person. It takes time, it takes effort. The Lord scattered them. Second time he said it and they stopped building a city called Babel, right? From there, the final line, from there the Lord scattered them three times. The point of the story is that they wanted to settle. They wanted to hang out together. They kind of wanted to just have what sometimes in in church circles we we call holy huddles. Uh, I remember growing up, people talking about the phrase, us four, no more, right? We got kind of everybody we need. We're going to just sequester. We're going to kind of just isolate from everybody else. We're happy with just us. We don't need anybody else. And so the Lord scattered them. He scattered them. He scattered them. God's trying to tell us something. What's he trying to tell us? I think on the opposite side of the page, there's uh, four principles here from the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Letter A. We, we often say something like this. We say, you know what, let... And the people in the story certainly did, and I think we can identify in many ways with them, right? Let's settle down in one place with one kind of people. That's what we say often. Let's kind of hang out here. Kumbaya, let's hold hands. You know, let's just, hey, I like everybody. Wouldn't it be great if it could just stay this way forever and no weird outsiders ever came and, and brought their strangeness into our beautiful community? Let's just settle down in one place with one kind of people. Let her be. In response, God comes down. Why does God come down to Babel? I think God comes down to Babel, the same reason he comes down in many other places, came down to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and with Eve, remember? He came down in the person of his son. God himself came down to live our life to experience our griefs, to die our death, to show us how to live. God comes down, but why? I believe God comes down for a couple of reasons, three that I can think of. God comes down because he's interested in our lives. He wants to see what's going on. God comes down, secondly, because he's involved in our lives. The great theologian Bette Midler was mistaken. God is not watching us. 
from a distance. He's engaged. He's involved in our lives. And the third reason God came down is that God has a plan. God has a plan to create a rich tapestry of diversity instead of a monochrome, monotonous, monolithic majority. Are you impressed with that? Took me some effort to come up with four M's. I wasn't trying to come up with four M's. I just thought of a monolith. That phrase just kind of stuck in my mind, and I, I kept thinking, I thought that the problem is that it's, it's monochrome. There's no variety. It's, everybody's the same there. They all came from the same place. They all talk the same language. They all eat the same food. It's monotonous. It's, it's monochrome. It's monolith, monolithic, not just talking about that monolith that they were trying to create, trying to build, but monolithic in another sense. One of the things I looked up about that phrase, monolithic, a monolithic society, one writer says, is a closed society. A closed society is not, is not, is not open. That makes sense, right? A closed society is not open. Not open to new ideas. Not open to new trade, not open to cultural diffusion. It's not open to new people, so they are very antisocial. They don't want to learn about other societies. They don't want other societies to learn about them because they might steal our ideas. Okay? Monolithic society. Dictionary.com says uh, monolithic society is characterized by massiveness, by total uniformity. By rigidity, I'm picturing Nazi soldiers goose-stepping in the 1930s and 40s. Characterized by rigidity, characterized by invulnerability. It sounds like what we could maybe also characterize, what the Old Testament calls, and Jesus also refers to, the fact that over time in life, we often develop hard hearts. We're closed. We're not porous. We're, we, we've been hurt before. I understand this. I had some wounds that I experienced uh, as, a, as a little one uh, growing up uh, and uh, as a teenager and in young adulthood that were extremely painful for me. And, and to protect myself, I, I built up some inner walls to keep people at bay uh, and to isolate myself, to keep myself from being harmed. And when you isolate, you find yourself eventually isolated and, and lonely and alone. It doesn't work well, but sometimes we like to live without a rich tapestry of diversity and instead in a monochrome, monotonous, monolithic majority but it's not the way we're intended to live. In Ephesians 3, one of the beautiful expressions of Scripture, unpacked by one of my mentors. Um, Ephesians 3, Paul is talking about uh, this mystery, this thing that, that people don't understand that, that has been opened now by God's Spirit. That's what the Spirit of God does. He opens things. Remember Luke 24? He opened their eyes to recognize Jesus. He opened their their hearts, they were strangely warmed by the presence of Jesus. He opened their, the scriptures to them. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. The Holy Spirit has revealed the mystery. 
that through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews, are heirs, maybe circle this next word, together. They're heirs together. They're not separate entities. They are heirs together. They're no longer two. They have become one. They're common heirs. They're going to inherit the same thing with Israel. They are, again, circle the word together. They are members together in one body. They've been, we've been grafted, Paul said in Romans 9, right? We've been grafted into one body. We used to be diverse and separate. God has pulled us together. And third, here's the third together. We are sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In Christ we are one. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. What was God's intent? His intent was this. This is what God intended, that through the church, this is his plan to create this rich diversity of diversity. God's plan was that through the church, the manifold, circle that, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. We have to unpack that for just a minute. The manifold, we had monolithic, people are going, I need a thesaurus for this message. Okay, I apologize, but next week we'll be better. Pastor Brandon will be here. What's manifold wisdom? There's a hymn that talks about God's manifold wisdom. Let me read the words from one of my mentors, John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians. He said, this mystery is not an abstraction. It was taking concrete shape before people's eyes. In this new phenomenon, this new multiracial humanity, the wisdom of God was being displayed. Indeed, the coming into existence of the church as a community of saved and reconciled people is at one and the same time a public demonstration of God's power. Roman, uh, Ephesians 1, 19 through 2, 6 tells us. God's mighty resurrection power. It's a public demonstration of God's grace, his immeasurable grace and kindness, Ephesians 2, 7. And now thirdly, in Ephesians 3.10, of his manifold witness. Now get this, I love this, love, love, love this, I hope you do. The word for manifold, word for manifold in Greek is palupoikilas, palupoikilas. Don't try to say that three times quickly. You know what it means? <clears throat> it means many colored, many colored. And it's used to describe, imagine what could be used for describing. It's used to describe flowers. It's used to describe crowns. It's, it's used to describe embroidered cloth with a variety of rich colors in it. It's used to describe woven carpets. A similar word, poikilos, is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, of a coat that a certain young man was given by his father to signify his value. Remember that coat? Remember who had the coat? Who was it? You know, sometimes you guys just don't respond at all. I can't hear a thing. I hope, I hope your kids are going to tell me at the drive-thru, Pastor Doug, they all said Joseph when you asked that question. Okay, you're, you're still engaged, right? Poikilos is used in the Septuagint for the coat of many colors. Another translation says, the richly ornamented robe, that vibrant robe which Jacob gave to his younger brother, his youngest son, Joseph, in Genesis 37. The many-colored, the richly 
ornamented, the multi-splendored wisdom of God. John Stott concludes this. So the church as a multi-social, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society, which was John Stott's original name, title for this entire commentary in Ephesians, given at Regent College just a, a year before I attended there about 40 years ago, his studies on Ephesians. God's new society. Its diversity and harmony are unique. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored or many-splendored wisdom of God. The, the beauty, the richness of God's wisdom has many colors, many, like the facets of a diamond. It looks different from every angle, and the beauty shines forth. Final conclusion from John Stott. So then, as the gospel spreads throughout the world, this new and variegated Christian community develops. It is if a great drama is being enacted, and history is the theater, the world is the stage, and church members, followers of Jesus in every land are the actors. You and I are the actors that display the manifold wisdom of God that's made known through the church. We started and said, you know, we, letter A, let's settle down one, one place with one kind of people. Letter B, God comes down, why? He's interested and involved in our lives. He has a plan to create a rich diversity of, of tapestry of diversity instead of a monochrome, monotonous, monolithic majority. Letter C, God responds to our desire to settle down in one place. No, don't settle, he says. God says, nope, I like diversity. I like variety. I'll scatter you. Off you go. And he scattered them. I could put that in another language with some new words that we've kind of defined right now. I believe God says this. I'm not crazy about monoliths. I'm more into manifold. Would you think for a moment about the food that you love? One of the ethnic backgrounds I come from is Danish. <clears throat> when I was young, enjoyed having these weird Danish pancakes that are round, and they make them in a weird thing, and uh, they're, they're delicious. A as I grew older, when I was little, I had a very, very limited palate. I, I didn't like much of anything. I was just very picky. Can you imagine? I was very, very picky. As I grew older, I, I, I grew to enjoy different kinds of food. Uh, a member of our church family in uh, Salinas, California, where I grew up, bought a, a franchise for a new thing that was just starting called fast food restaurants. So we had had A&W, that had been around for a long time, and McDonald's were starting to come, you know, I think they had hundreds of thousands sold by then. But somebody in our church family bought, can you imagine what this was like? A Taco Bell and sometimes on Sunday night after the service, we got to go in the back, probably illegal now, and pick out one or two items to have. Oh my goodness, right? I remember the first time I went to a Mexican restaurant in um, Carmel, California, Monterey, California. A beautiful restaurant, white tablecloths, white 
cloth napkins, very, very formal, but just a, a different kind of food. And, and, and through the years, I've come to enjoy so many rich varieties of food when I was growing up in our church, that same church, we also had a man who, who sold a certain kind of bread. It was called the Wonder Bread. You know what Wonder Bread is. You remember Wonder Bread from your childhood, baby? Wonder Bread's kind of white bread. I haven't had Wonder Bread for probably 30 years. Wonder Bread's boring to me. If you like it, God bless you. That's fine. We're all different. We all have different tastes, right? But, uh, but I like variety. I've even gotten to like, I love sourdough because we lived up close to San Francisco. I, I love sourdough for so long. I, I've even gotten, because my family, I've gotten to like multi-grain bread. I, I like variety. I like different kinds of bread. I, I like naan from India. I, I love the naan from India that I had in Okinawa a year and a half ago with our family. Incredible stuff. I, I like all kinds of bread. I like like bread that's kind of pressed flat in corn or flour. I prefer the corn. I like tacos. I like tostadas. I, I, I could go on for a long time, and this is a threat, and you know it. It's, I could do it, but I'm not going to do it much more. But here's what I'd say about food. I'm not into monolithic approach to food. I like manifold. I like variety, and so does God, and that's why he created the body of Christ, the family of God, the church. Interesting that the chapter after Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, starts the story of a man named Abraham. God, in a sense, kind of said, let's kind of start over and get things on a better footing. So we came to Abraham and listened to the language. In Babel, they said, let's settle, let's stay here, let's close ranks, let's build up walls. Us four no more. Genesis 12 Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go, <laughs> not settle, not stay, not sit, go. Go go where? Well, first of all, go from your country, go from your people, go from your father's household to the land that I will show you. And Why? because I want to do something for you and I want to do something through you. I want to do something for you and I want to do something through you. He said, verse two, I want to make you into a great nation and I will bless you. You will not believe how much I want to pour out my love and my grace on you. I'll make your name great. It's interesting, that's kind of what the people in Babel wanted, right? I'll make your name great, but also not only will I bless you, you will be a blessing And finally this, all peoples, all peoples, the manifold peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's repeated in Genesis 18, 22, 26, 28. Later is added the fact that not only am I going to bless the world through you, I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. And ultimately one of those descendants is Jesus. And many, many, couple thousands of years later, Some of Abraham's descendants by faith are you and I. What's the point? Number four, the point of the story of Babel is this. God said, I'm going to bless you, and then you are going to bless others. This is God's plan for human existence. 
This is what life is intended to be like. We all have difficulties, we all have struggles, we all have pain, sometimes excruciating. There are all kinds of things that are happening and have been happening and still happen. There's justice and injustice that takes place. There's kindness and cruelty that takes place. But at the heart of the human experience, God said, it's like this. I'm going to bless you, and you are going to bless others. And that's what the body of Christ is intended to look like. That's what the, this story in the book of Acts that we won't actually get to today. There's a shock. That's what this whole story is about. It's answering, it's redeeming what took place at Babel, where they all said, hey, let's hang out together. Let's create a hegemony. Let's create a, a monolith, a tower that's about us. It's going to have our name on it. It's going to keep other people away. It's going to be good. And God says, no, I like manifold, not monolithic. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes right where you are and for just a moment, just reflect on what we've heard. Two significant events took place in 1956. I was born. That's a significant, at least to me. But there was a, a young Baptist minister in Memphis named the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. He wrote that the real purpose and the goal of the Montgomery bus boycott... was not not just about bus rides sorry but it was about reconciliation it was about redemption it was about the creation of what he called the beloved community the beloved community is what happens when God blesses us. And then we bless others. He echoed it many times in 1957 at the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He wrote in a newsletter that the ultimate goal of SCLC is to foster and create the beloved community in America. A place where brotherhood is a reality. In his 19, uh, 1959 talk, he said that the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community so that when the battle's over, a new relationship comes into being between the oppressor and the oppressed. And he didn't just say it when he was younger. He said it two years before his tragic assassination in 1966. He he wrote in a magazine called The Christian Century. He said, I do not think of political power as an end, as an end in itself. Neither I do think of economic power as an end, as a goal. They are ingredients in the objective that we seek in life. They matter, they're important. But I think that the, that end or objective is a truly brotherly and sisterly, we could say, society. The creation of the beloved community. As you encounter people this week, 
as you reflect on events that take place in the news cycle, as you maybe react to it as, as one who maybe has settled with your kind, people who are like you, live around you, look like you, talk like you, enjoy the same kinds of food. Maybe you're resistant to variety. Maybe you're resistant to the manifold wisdom of God who said, this is how I want life to work. I'm going to bless you and then you. I want you to bless others. Living God, show us the way. We often live just for ourselves. We often exclude and push away, sometimes without even being aware of it, people who may not exactly be like us. Now, in my case, God, I'm so weird, there are very few people like me. That's not necessarily a compliment. I'm just odd. I'm different. I'm wired in a strange way. But God, you want us to make an impact in our world. So God, we pray that every one of us will enjoy your blessings, richly enjoy them, relish them, not just note them, but truly be grateful and live in the life they enjoy they provide but God help us to learn what it looks like to then bless others with the goodness and grace and the love and the joy and the kindness of the living God and all God's people said